Last week, last Sunday, we embarked on a two-week teaching journey here at Covenant, talking about um, something that our faith for thousands of years has been saying is essential for every single one of us to flourish, to come alive. And what we talked about last week was that we were also seeing that science, and I don't mean this glibly, is catching up with us on this, of realizing how important it is. We talked about a study that has been uh, taking place at Harvard for the last 85 years called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. They've looked at thousands of people over now three generations, and the focus of this study was to ask the question, um, what does it take for human beings to flourish? What makes people happy? What brings health? What brings longevity to life? And their hope was to find a few things Maybe they can come up with three things. Maybe they can come up with five things that we can look at and say in all the diversity of the thousands of people who have looked at, of different generations, different cultural things going on, are there any threads that run through it? And what they found, really to their astonishment, was it wasn't three things, it wasn't five things, it wasn't seven things, that there was one thing. One thing that their research clearly showed impacted happiness, and impacted our health and even the longevity of our lives more than anything else. And again, it's what faith has been teaching us is essential for thousands of years. And the one thing they found that's so important is the critical need for each and every person to have deep connections with others, deep relationships, deep ties, that that, more than any other single feature, is critical. Now, what they also found at the exact same time is that we are a, cu a culture that is getting worse and worse and worse at having those kinds of relationships in our lives. We are seeing loneliness growing among different age groups, among different backgrounds. And when we talk about a culture of loneliness, what we see is that it doesn't mean that we don't talk to people for the most part. It doesn't mean we don't see people. It means we're surrounded by people but we're not known by them. We're surrounded by people at work. We're surrounded by people in our offices. We're surrounded by people in our schools. We're surrounded by people in our neighborhoods. We're surrounded by people whose kids play on the same soccer team, and we have small talk about that. We have uh, all kinds of different opportunities to talk about people. We're connected online. We're uh, you know, able to see what's taking place in the world. We're able to see what's taking place in the life of another person or at least the version they want us to see as to what's taking place in their life. There's photos that we see about them. There's events we see about their children. There's things we can put online. There's lots of information. There's lots of kind of surface level awareness. But what we do not have in our culture and in a growing amount, it's becoming what many health professionals are calling an epidemic is an epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of not being known. And so science is getting really clear on the fact that this is what is most important to your flourishing and more and more of us don't have it. Don't know how to build it. And that gap is what we're talking about in these two weeks. That gap of God's design for friendship, for community, for being known to each other and how that maps with what science is teaching us is also so important. And the book that we've been looking at last week and this week to guide us in this idea of like, how do we form these kind of friendships? How do we form these kind of connections? How do we form this sort of community? Is from the Old Testament book of Job. 
Now, the book of Job is not one that most people run to and go, oh, this has got just wonderful, good, feel-good stuff about flourishing human beings. Job is a book we normally associate with intense suffering, and it does have that that's there. Job, in the passage we're about to read, has lost family members at this point. He is in mourning. He is in intense pain. He has been afflicted with different physical maladies at this point, including sores, painful sores that are all over his body. He is in a place of, of, of emotional, of psychological, of physical pain and suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, there's the, this beautiful example of friendship, of community, of connection that I think is something that can lead us to greater flourishing in our own lives, greater health, greater happiness in our own lives. So the passage, again, we're looking at today is from Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I invite you to take in God's word to us this day. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray you no matter who we are, how we gather to worship you this day, what beliefs, what thoughts, what doubts, what dreams we have, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we talked about last week was using these three verses to really give us a, a model of what friendship looked like. And what we said is, is that we have to start last week in a very deliberate place. If we're going to have these kind of friendships, and it's not the place most of us gravitate to. Most of us might hear this and be like, okay, I've got my to-do list. I'm going to be like Eliphaz. I'm going to be like Zophar. I'm going to show up in the lives of people. I'm going to be a really good friend. I'm going to kind of pursue folks. And, and those are good instincts, but that's not the place to begin if you want to form these kind of friendships. The place to begin to form these kind of relationships is that we all have to first be willing to be Job. We have to be willing to let people into our lives. We have to be honest with people in our own lives. We have to be willing to be vulnerable with people. When folks ask how they can pray for us, you have a choice every time. Do you tell the truth or do you lie? And if you're sitting there going, well, I am busy at work, you're lying. I mean, I know you're busy at work, but I'm certain there are other things that can be prayed for beyond that. Do we let people into our journeys? And I just want to say, I have had some amazing opportunities to experience and hear about some of your reflections and steps this week. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I want to urge you, just like when we introduced Alan last week and said that, that Alan being with us, that one lecture on the political polarization in our culture is not going to solve that. We need more than that. You don't just kind of choose to be Job and be vulnerable one time. It's like, well, I did it. Check that box. Now what else do I got to do, right? 
This is something we have to practice over and over and over again. But I want to encourage you to keep doing. I want to encourage you if you realize that some of you have, that you don't have those kind of relationships, to cultivate them, to pursue that. It might mean joining a small group. It might mean uh, pursuing and reaching out to someone you know. Uh, I just want to encourage you to keep going in that. It's hard work, but it is so critical that we're willing to be honest, vulnerable, to let people into our story. Today, we're talking about what it means, however, to move beyond the call to be Job into the call of what does it mean to be those three friends? How do we form these kinds of friendships? Because I think what the four of them have is remarkable. For a week, when they hear about his suffering, they show up. They don't wait for an invitation. They show up. And when they see his pain, when they see his suffering, they don't say anything. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights. They sit with him in his pain. And they mourn alongside of him. How many of us have those kinds of friends? How many of us know the names of the people that we would go and do that for them? The reason that you have to be Job before you can be these three friends is that when you think about friendship, there's something that most of us do when we see difficulty, when we see sadness, when we see suffering. And if you're not willing to be Job, the thing that we do is we walk into people who are having a hard time, and I know that I'm not the only one that's been accused of this, I know that you all have done this as well, that you walk in when people are having a hard time and we try to do what? We, thank you. Thank you. I'm not the only one. We try and fix it. We show up and we're like, oh, well, here's what I would do if I were you. Or here's what I would say if I were you. Or, oh, I had a situation like this in my life. And let me tell you how it worked out. We try to go and because the sadness, the pain can make us uncomfortable. We want to fix it. I am, I am chief among sinners in this. Uh, have any of you taken the, the Strengths Finder test? I, I don't know why I did this, because it's an online thing, but the Strengths Finder um, uh, test that, that lists like over like 30 strengths that we have. Anybody? Okay, there are a few of you who have taken that. It's supposed to help you know your gifts and to lean into those gifts. I took a Strengths Finder test this summer as part of the work I was doing on my sabbatical, and it said that my top strength in my core clarity, my top strength of the 30 whatever they are, was strength. Uh, strategic thinking, right? And, and in some situations, that's really good, right? You know, uh, probably good when we hit COVID and didn't know what to do. Like, hey, well, how do we think this out? And like, where do we go? Not as great when you're with people in pain, right? Because they don't feel like you see them as anything other than a project that you're trying to fix. And that, that in a sense, and I mean this seriously, is de dehumanizing to them in a way, is that you are a project, not a person, for me to see. You are a, a strategy for us to kind of work our way through. And so what we do is we try to show up and fix it because it just feels like sitting with them is not enough. We gotta do something to make it better. We gotta say something to make it better. We gotta, we gotta respond in a way that improves things. Feels like it's not enough just to be with people in their suffering. And if we can't fix it, then we just get really uncomfortable in the face of it so we kind of avoid it. Right? It's like, oh, I, just, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'll just kind of do my stuff, and, and I just hope it gets better. Job's friends don't do that. They don't have the ability to fix his suffering. In fact, later on, if you've read the book of Job before, they do start talking and offering advice, offering strategy of what to do, and that's where they mess everything up. Because their advice, like mine apparently often is when people are suffering, is not very good advice. It's not very helpful advice. And, uh, and so when they start strategizing and saying, here's what you should do, or here's why this is happening, that's where they start messing up. 
But what they do from the beginning is they sit with him. For seven days, they sit with him in his mourning and his pain, and they don't say a word. But they share in his suffering. As a reminder last week, and again, we were looking at this from the perspective of being Job. Um, this is what the Harvard study is saying we most need. Not fix-it people. We need people who will be present with us, who will show up for us in our suffering. We looked last week at this quote, but I want to bring it up again because, uh, and I want us to, again, look at it not from the same perspective last week, but from the other perspective of the friends. And this was from the Harvard research when they were looking at why do relationships make such a difference? Why do they make so much of a difference with happiness and health more than anything else? And this is what the director, Dr. Robert Waldinger, said in an interview. He said, so if you were to make one decision to best ensure your own health and happiness, it should be to cultivate warm relationships. We think this is the case because relationships help us manage stress. Following thousands of lives over decades, we see that every life has difficulties. So the question is not, do you have challenges? The question is, how can you meet those challenges? Do you have the resources that you need to meet those challenges? We say that the strongest resources to meet challenges is having good relationships. Really what you need is somebody in your life who you can call on. In fact, we asked our study participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Some of our folks could list several people, and some of our folks couldn't list anyone, not a soul in the world. We think that everybody needs at least one person in their life who they feel is a safety net for them, who would have their back if they were really in trouble. That's different from saying we all need someone who can show up and make our hard places better. It's not fix-it people. It's people who show up and remind us we're not by ourselves in our journey, that we're not alone in our journey. For seven days, they show up when they hear of his suffering. And yes, Job lets him in, but they show up. And when they see his suffering is so great, for seven days and seven nights, they sit with him in his pain and his suffering. I think if you asked what a picture of that might look like, Job's friends might be that picture here to share the challenges, the burdens. The kind of theological term for that that we use is that this is what many people call a ministry of presence. Ministry of presence might be a phrase that you have heard before. It means the ministry of doing what Job's friends do, of doing what the Harvard study says we need, of just showing up and being present for other people. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friend, whether it's your child, that there's a power in just being present with people. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I heard about the theology of presence would have been when I was in seminary, uh, the ministry of presence. I saw it as like a kind of a toothless cop-out might be the right word right? It's like, no, as pastor, you're supposed to come in and like have the right book or have the right quote or have the right Bible verse to make everything better. You're supposed to improve the situation. It's not enough just to kind of be present. That feels like something that that mere mortals might do, but, but I want to be somebody who can affect the situation more than that. That's why you got to be Job first. Because if you've been and allowed other people into your suffering, what you realize is the most important thing is for them to just be with you. That there's nothing more that you want. Lots of times than that. 
One of the ways that I've learned this is, is that next month is the five-year anniversary of when my father passed away of uh, pulmonary fibrosis, a, a lung disease that he struggled with for um, about the last year of his life. Um, many of you were at this church at that time when I and my brothers walked that journey with him and with my stepmother. And um, it's funny as the anniversary approaches the things I remember. And part of what I remember, and, it, and, it, made, and it, it struck me at the time, but it actually is something that over time has, has, has grown more in my consciousness and awareness, was at my dad's memorial service in Atlanta, where he lived, where he died, where I had grown up. The number of people that when I walked into the sanctuary for that service who were there because they wanted to just be with me and my family. People who didn't know my dad. People who showed up from different places I had worked, from a board that I had served on, from the years I'd done college ministry almost 20 years ago. People who showed up because they heard about my dad dying and they just showed up at the service. The reception afterwards was one of the most wonderful moments of my life as I was hugging people that I hadn't seen in 15 years who were just there to be with you. There were people from Covenant who were there, who showed up that shocked me because I didn't invite anybody. I didn't ask anybody to come. They were just there. And that presence meant so much. Not one of them could fix it. But it meant everything that they practiced a ministry of presence. And you all as a church did that well. Covenant has so many things we don't do well. But overall, we love each other well as a church. And you all did that for me when I came back. You, you, you sent me letters. You sent me cards. When you saw me on Sunday or when you saw me out on the patio, you didn't just talk like things were normal. You asked how I was doing. You asked how you could pray for me. I think sometimes when we see people who are in grief or who are in suffering, um, we, don't want to know, we don't want to say the wrong thing, so we don't really know what to do. The only thing that was wrong in my world at that time was to act like it wasn't there. You, you, when someone's really grieving, you don't have the ability to make it worse by asking the wrong question. You don't have that power. They're already in a place of pain. The only thing I would advise you not to do is say, hey, here are the three steps to grieving so you can work your way through this. Or ignore it. That's not what the Harvard study is saying we need, and that is not what Job's three friends do. It's not what Fife faith or science are telling us we need. We need people to practice a ministry of presence with us. And if you aren't willing to be Job, you're going to be a fix-it person or an avoider of pain. But if you've let people into your pain first, you'll know how powerful it is for people just to be with you. And they heard about his suffering. They showed up. They didn't wait to be invited. They showed up. For seven days and seven nights, they sat with him in his mourning and in his pain, and they didn't say a word. It's a ministry of presence. It might be the most powerful thing you can offer to people. And it can take a variety of forms. As I said, there were letters, there were phone calls, there were all different kinds of things. There were people showing up, changing their lives to be there. But I want to end this series, I want to end this sermon with just a, a, an illustration of what a ministry of presence can look like in the most creative of ways, most powerful of ways. And I don't say this so that you do this exact thing, but I say this to maybe fire your imaginations about what God's calling you to be a presence might look like.
And it comes from the world of college athletics. It comes from the world, actually, of college football. And if any of you guys in Austin, Texas know anything, college football is kind of a big deal here, right? Uh, and if you're not a college football fan, A, don't admit that in Austin, but uh, B, this isn't really a sports analogy, so if you're sitting there going, oh, I can't stand sports analogy, just hang with me, uh, because there's something here that's really important for us to see. It doesn't come from uh, uh, Austin. It doesn't, it's not a story that comes from a university in Texas. It comes from a university in Iowa. Some of you may have heard about this. The University of Iowa, which to probably most of the country, except for Iowa State fans, is kind of the flagship program, football program in the state of Iowa. In a rural state, they've had a lot of success. Their head coach, Kurt Ferentz, has had a, a good bit of success uh, over the years. And, and in that rural state, they still have a pretty big stadium. It's not Texas size, but it's 70,000 seat stadium. And that game, like a lot of uh, stadiums, is sold out. They, the, the college football fans there are passionate. Now, one of the interesting things about the University of Iowa is that they have, uh, you know, the, the, on their campus, different buildings, but they have just recently constructed a new building. And it's a giant tower, it's huge. And they built it right next to the stadium. In fact, it towers over the stadium uh, and it's several floors above it. And most universities and most sports programs don't want that, right? Because what it means is people can watch the game for free. So they don't allow, uh, in most universities, to allow to have a tower looking down on the stadium because people just, you know, not buy a ticket and they'll just kind of watch for free. But this building is different, and it was built on purpose so that people could see into the stadium. It's a modern building, and the walls of it uh, on the upper floors are all glass. Just windows running from the length of one end of the building to the other. And the reason it was constructed that way is so that on game day, people could look down into the stadium. But the building is not a dormitory. It's not a, a classroom building. It's not a student union. That The building is actually a children's hospital. It's one of the premier children's hospitals in the country. It's a teaching hospital on the campus of the University of Iowa. Children from different corners of the state, but different corners of the country and even the world, who are battling some of the most significant illnesses, who are spending their lives for a certain amount of time in that hospital with their families. But it was built in a way that on game day, those children can be taken out with their families and have a Saturday afternoon to watch football. They line them up by hundreds with their families, all along these windows to look into the stadium. There's, some of them can walk, some of them are there in wheelchairs, some of them are there in hospital beds with IVs hooked up to them. But if you look at these children, they are given jerseys, they wear Iowa Hawkeye jerseys, they paint their faces, and they are there for game day with doctors and nurses. The tradition that has developed there around this isn't so much about just what takes place with the kids and the families, but what takes place in the stadium. And one of the individuals who's been a part of what takes place in the stadium related to those families is the head coach, Kirk Ferentz. He knew that that tower was there for a children's hospital, but like many of us, you never anticipate being the one who's going to the hospital. But several years ago, his son and daughter-in-law who were pregnant at the time, he got an emergency phone call that his daughter-in-law had gone into labor way too early and was giving birth to their granddaughter. And he and his wife hurried over to the stadium to be there and this child came too early and for a week was in the NICU and the doctors and the nurses battled for her health. And tragically, she did not survive. 
The Ferenc family, as they went through that pain, realized that one of the things for people when your child is sick, when they're critically ill, when you are spending your days and nights in that hospital situation, is that when you are there, you are basically cut off from the rest of the world. It's like the world outside of that hospital. Your child and their health is all that your focus is, and you can feel very alone. So a group of people, including the head coach, got together, and they decided to try to do something to respond to those hundreds of faces on game day looking down into the stadium. So starting a number of years ago, at the end of the first quarter, the public address announcer comes on and invites all 70,000 people in the stand to turn away from the field, to look up at the hundreds of faces in those windows looking down at them, and to spend 60 seconds waving to them. To see 70,000 people waving for a minute to children, some of whom are terminally ill, to waving to their moms and dads, waving to the doctors and nurses, is an incredibly powerful thing to see. And it started to spread from there. When they started doing it, what they realized it wasn't just the fans who were doing it, but when they looked down, they saw that leading his team was the head coach of Iowa, Kirk Ferentz who stopped in the middle of what was taking place between the first and second quarters and began waving to the children and families up there, telling everybody, don't talk to me about football in these moments. His players started waving as well. The assistant coaches stopped chewing people out on the bench for what they had done wrong, and they turned around, and the assistant coaches start waving to them. The players out on the field waiting for the game to resume at the end of the timeout are all started turning and waving. And it spread from there. The referees now stop in between. And all of the referees turn and wave with the fans. And now the opposing team has gotten into it. And so whether they're playing Nebraska or Ohio State or Maryland or some other team in the Big Ten, now the opposing coaches and the opposing teams, everybody stops and looks away from the field to wave to those families and children. And to see those families and children waving back in those windows. And the cynics among us might say, well, what difference in the end does that make? Those children are still sick. Those families are still in the hospital. How much of a change does that actually make? And I came across an interview with a local Iowa reporter from a man, young boy named James, who's 16 years old, has spent a lot of time in that hospital. He is a cancer patient. And this is what he said. Some people might think it's just a wave, but it is so much more. It shows you that people remember you. That wave reminds you that you matter. When they heard about his suffering, they showed up. When they saw his pain, they sat with him not saying a word for seven days and seven nights. They mourned with their friend in his brokenness. They didn't avoid it. They didn't try to fix it. But they were present. We are designed for relationship. We are designed to belong to others. You were invited to be Job, 
to build these relationships by letting people into your life, letting them into your story, letting people come and journey with you, to be present with you, to pray for you. And then we are called to take that ministry of presence and extend it out to others. And the world changes as we do so. This week, you might be led to change your calendar and take somebody to lunch, to show up at a wedding, to show up at a memorial service, to show up in somebody's life, to just walk with them. This week, you might be led to text someone or to call somebody or to write somebody a letter. And this week, you might be called just to wave to someone who's struggling. But I'll tell you something. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus wherever we live, wherever we work, and wherever we play. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your leading and your guiding as to what it means to be your people, who you are with, and we are with one another. Help us to build these relationships in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.